Hello, and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. <laughs> I'm really aware that my voice flipped during that intro. I, um, I've been working up some tracks for this uh, project called Jammin' Player, um, which you can go and check out. You may have noticed that a lot of the isolated drum stems I've been sending out have not been Beatles uh, of late. They've been other artists too, and that's because I've been putting these tracks together for Jammin' Player. Anyway, yesterday I had to sing quite a few songs, and um, a lot of them <laughs> were very high, especially House of the Rising Sun by the Animals. Oh my goodness, that is high. So my voice is feeling it today. It's a little bit croaky, and I can't stop these little vocal flips from happening. So I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to take it easy today, I think, and uh, put my feet up and have a beer. Anyway, um, we'll just crack on. So this is part two of my conversation uh, with Liam Goff of the Teskey Brothers. Um, it's been such an enjoyable conversation. We we talked for quite a long time after this finished, as is always the case. And um, I, I can't... Uh, can't wait for them to come back over to the UK so that we can uh, sort of meet in person. He's been such a, an interesting person to speak to. Um, so we'll just get straight in. Here we go. Part two of my conversation with Liam Goff. Let's talk about your studio setup. Um, I've, I've seen what I've seen on Instagram and and that's kind of as, as far as my knowledge goes. So uh, do you want to talk us through, maybe it might be interesting to start from from the first piece of gear that you can remember buying <laughs> and then take us through the uh, the rabbit hole <laughs> that is home studios. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe not the first piece of recording gear, but I mean, I grew up with my parents' record collections and they had really strong record collections because they were part of record clubs when they were kids. Um, and I would make mixtapes on my Sony cassette Walkman. And so yeah. that sort of was like my first thing. CDs were in, but I didn't have CDs because, you know, they cost a mint um, and I had a, a Walkman, so I'd make mixtapes. And so that's sort of my first experience, of, I guess, of like doing stuff with, with audio and then, of course, went down through the digital realm and, and bought a, a, a digital interface and sort of did that Then realised that, no, I actually want to, yeah, analog was really coming back and so I bought a Tascam uh, four-track uh, cassette deck and was recording drums for the bands I played in because um, I, I was playing in six, seven bands before the Teskey Brothers took off. Um, so for different acts, I was recording drums um, in my bedroom <laughs> in a share house uh, in Fitzroy in Melbourne and, uh, yeah, it sort of pushed the limits of what I could do with a four-track. What and setup then, were you using for that mic-wise? Um, basically a Glenn, modified Glyn Johns, uh, technique, um, you know, only had four, four mics to work with. Um, sometimes, uh, yeah, two condensers sort of Glyn Johns style, um, either a snare or a kick and then a room It had a hallway. And so I'd, uh, yeah. uh, you know, go, go get a, a distant room mic in this stairwell of this old two story house. Amazing. So just really having a lot of freedom to muck around with that sort of stuff. Um, and Did then you I learn, heard the, sorry, I'm jumping in here cause I've, this is stuff I'm really interested in. I mean, drum wise that teaches, it's got to teach balance. You know, the, I, I, I don't know how you know I'm, I'm sure you feel the same but I, my playing changes well it actually doesn't change too much but since I've done a lot more studio work my playing has adjusted 
um, to to playing more in the studio. I mean, I play a lot more in the studio than I do live now, and um, my my live playing is different as a result of the studio. But I can tell I've had to adapt the way that I play. The more you hear the nuances of how loud your hi hat is, or how hard you've hit that crash cymbal, or um, where the toms fit, you know, within the balance of the of a fill or whatever. Um, the that minimal mic setup is you, you have no choice but to be well balanced because you can't individually pull pull the faders up yourself. You have to, you know, your arms and legs are the faders. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the interesting thing about recording yourself and and the feedback you get is your. Um, set with these challenges to try and fix things and if it's if you're playing the instrument and you're listening back and you're adjusting it I think it must have helped me I've had a few engineers Sam and another engineer we work with in Melbourne now and Zai who's like this wizard of analog he's originally from Japan and he you know worked in Japan uh, through the uh, 70s and 80s uh, on strictly you know tape and things like that and he says it's easy to mix drums uh, with me because I supposedly sort of mix myself. And But I think I, I just had to learn to do that using minimal mics. But also with Sam engineering the first album, uh, most of it is just two Coles uh, 4038s in sort of a Glyn Johns position, not condensers but ribbon mics. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I would have to go into the control room and go, oh, yeah, sh- shoot, the hi-hat's really sticking out or it's not cutting through or, geez, the, my ride symbol is... I've got to stay away from that bell. It's just cutting through too much or, and yeah, learning to, to, to mix yourself and using less microphones creates less phase issues. Um, and there's a lot to be said for room sounds, you know, we'll have when we're recording uh, rhythm guitar amp, uh, lead guitar amp, bass amp in the same room and, you know, all those mics and things put in, you know, wherever they fall or we might move things around, but there's that bleed between microphones that creates a, a live sound. And, um, yeah, I guess they're happy accidents a lot of the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think recording myself definitely changed something. I wasn't necessarily conscious of it, but it was a good process that I'm glad I went through. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still going through. Well, oh yeah. It never stops. Never stops. <laughs> so, uh, post, You've you've got your task cam and you're recording in your bedroom. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to, you know, get a reel-to-reel tape machine and being a, uh, you know, not not having a huge amount of money as a musician, working part-time as an engineer, because I started industrial design. I was an industrial designer after school ah. and, um, and then quit that because I wanted to focus on music. So, yeah, I didn't want to spend a lot of money on gear, but I, I saw this... Uh, early Atari MX5050 8-track half-inch machine that was in bad condition um, up in Sydney, which is about nine hours' drive away. And so I actually bought that for a steal and I had to go to Sydney to pick up something for um, someone. So I, yeah, made a trip of it and I picked up the Atari and it took me probably six months to fix up um, and get it all working as it needed to. But that was a really good learning experience as well. Um, and so I've still got that and, and love that to death. Um, so that kept me going for a long time and I did done a bunch of recording of drums and, and, uh, you know, as much as I can do with an eight track before bouncing it into digital or, or making a mix. Um, and then more recently I've, I've picked up an Ampex, uh, 
440 uh, two dedicated two track quarter inch. And so um, I've really enjoyed mixing down from the eight track to the two track um, through uh, this console that I've got that I've cleaned up. It's a Yamaha um, small sort of uh, late 70s, early 80s Yamaha console. Um, and yeah, I have also bought a... I'm, I'm upgrading... I probably will keep the 50-50, um, but I'm upgrading to a 16-track, one-inch Tascam machine at the moment also. Wow, so very cool. Um, that's the next... The next challenge. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a next challenge, isn't there? There's always there's always yeah. more. <laughs> it never stops. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've got quite a uh, a nice selection of outboard things as well. I've I've noticed. Do you want to talk us through those? Yeah, um, I sort of started off buying um, some WA two seventy three EQs, which are obviously eleven seventy three clones, mm-hmm. um, and they were really good for learning purposes because they've obviously got EQ and I didn't have a nice console. So I got four channels of those and that meant that I could send that straight to the tape machine and and do a lot of stuff. Um, And they're actually quite clean. And so the next choice for for pre's um, was to get a Sebatron, which is actually Australian-made. I'm not sure if people many people have heard of them. I don't know of it, no. Yeah, look it up on the internet. Sebatron's not on Instagram, unfortunately. Um, But they're made up in, I think, Brisbane, up north from here in Australia. And uh, the one I got, which is a lot of people are using on drums and all sorts of things, is a four-channel VMP4000E. And it's it's quite a simple simple unit, but I just love it, you know. Part of me wants to get another uh, four channels of of those Valve mic pre's um, so I can have eight of them to when I'm, you know, doing remote sessions and things like that because I just love pumping the drums through them. <laughs> and they don't have a huge amount of choice, you know. Um, they've only got a, a three-stage input gain um, and a few different basic settings that um, I just love, again, the simplicity of it. There's not that many options. Um, so love that. Um, and I'm also loving the WA76 compressors. I've got a pair of them for doing stuff and, um, yeah, loving I really like trying to emulate some of these heavily compressed stereo drum overhead sounds um, that I think I was inspired by. There's a Swedish psychedelic band from, I think they got together in the 90s called Dungen. Okay, no, I don't know um, them. And some of their drum sounds, you know, they sound like, it's it's basically where Kevin Parker got his sound for Tame Impala from. He was a big Dungen fan. Yeah. Um, So... If you go listen to some of that, the toms are really ringing and they sort of sound like a bebop sort of jazz tuning, but the compression on those is is like pretty far out. But for psychedelic music, um, it's it's really really cool. So I have a lot of fun experimenting with that kind of stuff. Um, and then yeah, that's I don't have that much outboard gear, but um, yeah. How do you balance so, as a when you're doing remote sessions? Um, how do you how do you balance the um sort of going in going in essentially to to whatever you're recording to i mean obviously you've got to send stems so it will end up being digital at some stage um the commitment side of it um to what is going on on the other end so you know my constant battle is how much can i process this to taste without going so far that it restricts what's happening at the other end 
Um, and depending on who I'm working with, I know I can go further or less far. <laughs> um, you know, I have to keep it. You know, if I if I think someone else is going to mix this and I don't know who it is, then maybe I won't commit too much. Whereas if I know, then I'll I'll hold. You know, maybe I'll only send. My favorite is when they go, just send me four mics. It's fine, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, brilliant. I love it. I love it. And I'll I'll have all the stems there separately, but just send them a little folder of just my favorite mics in, and that's my favorite sort of thing to have. But how do you, how does that work for you? How do you balance all of that? Yeah, it sounds much the same. You speak to whoever you're recording for and try and get a gauge of whether they're have trust in in what you're doing um and if you've got strong references and a strong idea of what they're going for you can shoot for that but you know um it's always a mix of recording uh you know uh, the multi-tracks just straight to digital through some outboard gear or you know going to the um the eight track and then bouncing directly straight off the repro head into the daw so that you know everything stays in time but, you know, there's monitoring constraints working that way. But, um, yeah, it's always just has to be a discussion with the, the person, people you're working for, and uh, just try and satisfy what they're looking for with whatever way. If you've got to do backflips or uh, somersaults, <laughs> you, you do what you got to do to try and uh, to, to get the project where it needs to go. So is most of the... Everything you're doing, kind of to with your tape machines and sort of working to your two track, is that sort of mostly your demos that you're making yourself? Is that stuff that you're doing for you, or do you does that have a place in in your remote working too? Uh, it does as well. Yeah, some people will put the trust in you know getting a stereo, essentially a stereo drum mix or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, also if I record eight, eight channels to the um, eight track and then bounce that down to the two track ampex i can always go back and you know do different bounces and and amendments so um it all depends on on time and communication and i really enjoy it i mean it's it's it it's it's hell of a lot of fun for me so i don't mind making amendments and going oh yeah i'll just spend a bit of time on this today and wait till i get some feedback and then and then chug along with it because you know, time between touring and other things, working with the Teskey brothers, it's all, um, I really enjoy spending it working on other things. And I find that working on someone else's creative project will spur creativity for me as well. So um, it's, yeah, I just feel really lucky to be able to do all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great. I, I agree with you completely. Working, uh, working on somebody else's, music is creativity in a, in a different it's a different way of doing it really and it's uh i i enjoy that that little bit of um sort of butterflies almost when you send something that you know has pushed the boundaries and you kind of i always send a little email and i've said something along the lines of like this just brace yourself because this is not quite what you expected but i think you might like it and if you don't like it that's absolutely fine but i love that feeling of I think this is really cool. See what you think. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes you just have to present things with confidence and believe in them because it doesn't matter how good it is. If you sort of send something to someone and say, oh, look, I'm really not sure or, you know, um, don't get freaked out by it, it puts them in the mindset of going, oh, and, you know, maybe they're not, uh, if, if it's drum tracks, maybe their strongest thing is is making judgments on what's a good drum track and things and, you know, they're paying you for a sound and, and your ear. And so, yeah, it's, I think sometimes you've got to find the confidence to really 
believe in something and and uh, and put it forward. And you can always get told no, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that's the, the, probably the biggest lesson in music, isn't it? Like just be able to accept no. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you got a preferred sort of mic setup? I mean, I think you you may have seen the way that I work is I have lots of mics on the kit and I send lots of options, but I have, in my mind, I always default to the same stuff, you know, like the same kind of things each time. Um, even though there's so many options there, there's a, there's a handful that I quite like the sound of that seems to be my favorite. Um, how does that work for you? Have you got a, a preferred setup that you like? It depends if, if we're going for certain sounds, I'll try and, you know, I'll have an idea of what, how to, how to maybe get that sound. Um, but a lot of it, you know, my go-to starting positions is often a modified Glyn Johns, but with two ribbons, um, if I need a tighter sound, uh, two condensers and then, um, yeah, go from there. And a lot of it is, uh, the sound of the drums themselves and the, the sound of the room itself. Um, so, you know, I've been working on a session for an Australian artist and it was sort of an uh, early to mid 70s sounding thing. So I popped the bottom heads off and got the chamois out and put them over the uh, the drums and, and got quite a, a dead sort of tight 70s sound um, from the same sort of mic technique as a modified sort of Glyn Johns. So, um, yeah, and I, I don't particularly want to have too many choices. Um, I'll often for remote sessions have, you know, four two ones on the toms as an option, but you know, if I was doing it for myself, I'd try and make it work without having all those mics, try and get away with a four mic setup or four mics and maybe a room mic, depending on sound. I love room mics and I love ribbons. Um, you know, the, the figure eight pattern of a ribbon, getting really creative, really thinking about where the, the back of the microphone is pointing and, and, and trying to visualize what's going on with that. Um, so, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of ribbon mics. Uh, for the Teskey Brothers stuff, with majority of the drum sounds you'll hear, and on other instruments as well, is the Coles forty thirty eight. So I've got mm -hmm. a pair of clones that are made by uh, an Australian um, guy. Uh, it's called Open Plan Recording OPR, okay. and so uh, I bought a set of forty thirty eight clones from him, um, which have I think they're. Uh, 0.4 micron or 0.6 micron ribbons, which is, I think most ribbon microphones are about four microns thick. So 0.6 microns is an extremely thin and sensitive ribbon. So, mm. um, yeah, if anyone that's worked with the Coles 4038s, like they're just the most amazing sounding ribbons in my opinion. I, I love, I mean, I have one and I, I absolutely love it. It's, um, that is the the one that I always default to. It, it sort of controls the cymbal so well. It's got that sound that I'm so familiar with, and it's a uh, yeah, beautiful. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I'd love to. I'll have another one one day, and then I'll have a nice stereo pair. Um, oh yeah, yeah, but one day. <laughs> but I think going back to what you were saying about um, starting with a Glyn John's setup, I think that that probably would surprise. Um, a lot of the people that I work with, um, you know, I use pretty much the same kit on everything. I change the snare out and the cymbals out. Um, but you know, I, did, I did an EP for somebody a couple of weeks ago and every track had a, almost the same setup on it, but they all sound different. And it's to do with the, the way that I'm playing because it, you know, different songs incite a different 
um, you know, hit the drums slightly harder or with a, a different sort of attitude, depending on what, you know, what the feel of the song is, essentially. I think that's really important as drummers. So much of it boils down to what we, what we do and the way that the kit sounds and the way, um, you know, the way that we approach the music. It's not necessarily the mics. The mics are just there to sort of capture that, <laughs> essentially. Definitely. And you put two different drummers behind the same kit, they're going to sound different. You ask them to play the same rhythm or the same tune, they're going to sound different. So um, that's that's the magic. No, uh, Yeah, 100%. Do you find having your own space, you understand it and you understand your drums and you understand the way that you play to such a sort of intricate level that that really helps with all of that? You know, you kind of... I, I end up thinking in the studio, I almost don't know how the drums sound in, in the room. I know how they sound through the room mics. <laughs> you know, I yeah. can pic- picture things. I'm always thinking th- through microphones almost. Um, and I, I know the sound of everything quite well. I imagine it's the same for you. Yeah, I guess once you get it dialed in, I'm just scared of getting stuck in habits and uh, that, you know, that might be end up being a limitation or something. But if people like the sound, then then that's good. And if people are coming to you because they like that sound, like they are for, for your drum tracks, then um, don't change anything unless you need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, yeah. if, if, it's not, if it's not broken, don't fix it. <laughs> no, no. But I mean, it's, I, it, I guess it helps that you, you know, when you're, when you're recording stuff for, for artists that you must know the way that your room sounds and, and how to dial, dial in a sound that's going to fit that track for you quite well. Um, just because it's a room that you know and you know you're playing in your kits. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a huge benefit. And um, yeah, the longer I spend in this room um, with this gear, the the more refined I guess it it gets to the point where you want to change something and try something different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I buy, recently, a new, buy a new machine. <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. Uh, I recently of uh, testing out a, a warm audio WA-47 um, tube mic, which has been really fun, and mucking around with a mono overhead using that. Or another favorite position for drums is sort of behind the drummer's back or yeah. bottom or the back of the head. There's something that's, that's one of my favorite uh, single mic mono mic positions and I've i'm not sure whether it's because over there. i've just i've literally just moved the i have a mono room and i've just moved mine to behind my head and it sounds yeah. incredible yeah well that's the thing you're listening with your ears and so if you're mixing to that point why not have a microphone somewhere there you know and then if you start sliding it down you know behind your back and you can get more of the beta head uh skin side coming through the mic and you can you can do a lot of mixing just by playing with the height and directionality of of a condenser or a ribbon behind you um so that's been really fun how'd you get on with that microphone i've I've not used one but i've heard good things about it um loving it um i had a engineer put me onto it um and yeah, I was meant to just be sort of road testing it, but I don't think it'll be going back to the uh, shop. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I uh, I think it's I think one's on my list. I've got um, it doesn't belong to me, so I have to be slightly careful. But I've got the junior. I think it's a forty-seven junior that's at the studio at the minute. And I um, I have to admit, I'm not in the habit of saying of being negative about things, but I don't get on with it particularly well. It sounds a bit flat to me. Um, but I'm hoping that. From what I've heard from friends of mine who've got it, 
the um, the sort of grown up version, like you have, <laughs> seems to be uh, worth its salt and a bit more have a bit more sort of life about it. Yeah, it's it's slight. Supposedly, from what I understand, it's slightly darker than a lot of the other forty seven clones, but I like that so far. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I haven't had a lot of, uh, you know, other 47 uh, things to compare it to. Um, so, yeah, but seems to be working for me and I like the sound of it. Nice. Uh, I'm, I want to geek out about kits. Uh, what, what drums have you got? Uh, I sort of grew up as a Rogers uh, guy. My, nice. my dad was a, uh, a drummer and played in bands and he actually picked me up a secondhand Rogers kit when I was probably... 12 i think for not much money at all and that sort of started my love for rogers and then i've been yeah collecting and building up rogers kits but i kind of have uh, yeah a bunch of american 60s three ply three ply drums um uh, rogers slingerland and ludwig um mostly so yeah thin uh mostly maple poplar shells with reinforcing rings and i can't i can't sort of move away from that sort of sound and feel <laughs> what how would you i mean i already know what you're going to say but how would you describe that sound what is it about the that era of drums that works for you um i think it's the lightweight and it, the responsiveness you know you don't have to hit them too hard to get them sort of resonating whereas thicker more modern shells i think you know as they were developed through the 90s and things people were playing harder and that sort of worked but i've never um they they haven't really resonated with me as a player um and there's something i think about the the reinforcing rings and you get the like the really fat round over edges that transfers a lot of resonance from the head from the head to the shell um which also potentially mutes the drum a bit more but um yeah I don't know. I mean, is it just that they're beautiful objects and, you know, <laughs> maybe that we feel comfortable because we know that majority of recordings were done, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s on these sort of American-made kits and English-made kits. There's beautiful Premier Beverly. You've got a Beverly, don't you? I do, yeah. It's a very similar finish to the one you've got behind you, actually. it's um, uh, Oh, cool. Yeah, I think it's called Gold Viking. It's it's funny the fin. Have you? I don't know if you've seen uh, a, a sort of a, a Beverly kit with that sort of finish up close before, but it almost looks, um, you know, on the beach you get worms that kind of come up through the beach and leave those little trails. It yeah. looks like indents of that, but on the kit, it's really it, wow. it's almost like a negative impression. It's it's really interesting. I've never seen a finish like it, but I know Premier. I think Premier did a short run of them, and Beverly had a few kits that had that finish. Yeah, I, I love it. It's um, I have to admit, when I got my my Ludwig is an early seventies, and when I put that up, that felt like the Beverly on steroids. Um, but the Beverly is still, it's still got a, a there's a place for it for me. I love it. <laughs> it's a, such a nice kit. Definitely, and so many uh, amazing drummers played on amazing recordings that played on English made kits. You know, the. Uh, Birch and are they birch shells with beech reinforcing rings? I think they're mahogany. From oh, what okay. I think so, yeah. Um, I also like the fact that Beverly is just down the road in Yorkshire from me. You know, it's actually a village that's. I mean, when I say down the road, it's about sort of twenty-five, thirty miles. But I mean, in Australia, that is down the road. <laughs> that is down the road. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I, I love the fact that it was that you know they will have come from just just down there, and uh, now they have a place here. It's a, uh, and I, I'm uh, in the process of building up a second room at my space so I can have them up permanently because at the minute they're just sort of stacked, and it's sad to see them not being used. And I want to use them. Definitely, drums deserve to be played. Yeah, a hundred percent. I do. Maybe there is some kind of a some kind of nostalgia about them or like confidence that we know that a lot of those records <laughs> have these drums on so you just want to play like that totally i remember when i was in uni i walked into a music store and i wanted to buy a fluffy beater like the old you know the sort of jazz style yeah lamb's wool beaters and i remember talking to the guy in the shop and he was he was really lovely and i sort of said oh yeah i want to buy this thing and he's he's like oh and i'm sort of trying to talk I'm, I'm questioning whether I should talk myself out of it. Like, is this stupid? And he's like, no, man, if, if that makes you feel good, that's going to make you play a certain way and that's probably a good thing, so just do it, you know? <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter. If, if it makes you feel good, then you should, you should do it. And, um, you know, it's nice to, to – I want to – the drums I have make me want to get on them and play them and see what sounds I can get out of them. I feel inspired by – these things and i'm really lucky to have a collection of vintage drums um yeah it it definitely helps me for for whatever reason i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> snare wise um do you have specific snares that you keep coming back to or do you um as as always i, I sort of um from from my perspective i have sort of three snares that i know do do certain jobs that I tend to go back to a lot. And then I've got a lot of flavor snares that I know do very specific things very well. Um, Snare-wise, how does that work for you? Yeah, I mean, from from doing a lot of recording with other engineers, uh, we do mic uh, uh, snare shootouts. And Sam's studio um, that we record at, um, you can't see from the control room to the tracking room. So they can't see what snare you're pulling up. And, you know, early on in the recordings, we did a bunch of shootouts. I I think I brought ten snare drums of different varying things, and um, we'd always end up with a, a five-inch uh, deep, either Superphonic or Rogers Super Ten, um, or a, a Slingerland Gene Krupa ten yeah. lug snare. <laughs> and it was just like so. It's either yeah, it's a metal five-inch deep snare um, seemed to always get picked by whoever was in the control room. Then I'd go listen and. Um, you know, they wouldn't know what snare I was putting up, but that's the sound they wanted. And different studios, different engineers, that seems to be what people pick. But I've got a bunch of wooden snares, um, you know, from the 60s and 70s um, for different sounds, which I really love using. But for some reason, yeah, when I get asked to go to a studio and, and record drums, a lot of the time it's, you know, the most recorded snares in history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's just uh, something about it. I think it must be what people default. That's their, in their mind's eye. That's what a snare sounds like. Well, that's it. What came first, the chicken or the egg? But <laughs> I've, I've got some really fun snares. I've got a, uh, it must be a seven or eight inch deep 60s uh, Ludwig, uh, sorry, Premier snare that is oh, yeah. actually really amazing. Um, really sort of. I can get a lot of different sounds out of that one snare and I love playing it. So, um, but yeah, I used to have a huge multitude of snares and I sort of sold some off because I was sort of realized that I can get the sounds I need from, I don't know, the eight or so snares that I, maybe 10 snares I have nowadays. <laughs> I love that. Eight, 
maybe 10 <laughs> probably <laughs> probably more like 12 <laughs> yeah it's a i'm similar position really i uh, i actually sold a couple of snares so i could buy some more outboard stuff because it was the same there was a couple that were quite worth quite a lot of money that were just sat on the shelf and when i first bought them they were a bit novelty uh, i had a 1942 ludwig and ludwig so before it became just ludwig um and it was uh oh, what do they call that finish now I'm not um I'm not very good at uh, sort of drum nerdery too much but the, you know where the where the finish sort of fades in and out of itself what's that called Ah uh, Juco Juco so that's it Juco yeah Exactly yeah and it was beautiful it was such a pretty drum but it just didn't get used and uh you know so I sold it off and bought some preamps instead and <laughs> and they get used <laughs> uh, but well, yeah, the it, cycle it, continues <laughs> It does oh man it's never ending I uh I just spent a few hundred pounds on um power conditioners for the studio <laughs> which was a really exciting purchase to buy um not but it will be they're important <laughs> it's totally yes it is just never ending it, it's never ending and uh, I, my my poor wife just has to open the door and accept packages through the door and she doesn't even question it anymore <laughs> she's just <laughs> no well he, he says he needs it so he must need yeah. it <laughs> yeah uh, it's, it's all for your business isn't it precisely it's tax deductible yeah. that's the one <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh what's i uh, what uh a couple of last things that I'd, I'd like to ask you it's sort of, first of all what are you listening to that in terms of sort of maybe not necessarily influencing your work with the Teskey Brothers, but in terms of you've mentioned a couple of bands already that I'll I'll link to and and that Dun uh, what I've already found them Dungan, I'm going to check them out. But yeah, what else what else are you listening to right now that is uh, that you'd recommend people check out? Oof. Um... Oh, I mean, I'll listen to all sorts of stuff. Um, my girlfriend's actually, she's got a lot of, uh, she's lived in Turkey and uh, Italy and all over the place. So she's been showing me a lot of really interesting music, um, a lot from the 60s and 70s, from North Africa and stuff. Oh, cool. Um, I've been getting into Falakuti again. I sort of go through yeah. phases and Afrobeat and Tony Allen and stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, all sorts of all sorts of stuff um lounge music from from america in the late 50s early 60s and stuff um garage music from uh america like there's a band the ocs from san francisco that that do this john dwyer is the front man and he just keeps churning out amazing albums of 60s inspired sort of heavy garage stuff um but uh, i i love listening to just about everything you know yeah it's interesting you mentioned sort of lounge music. It's a, uh, I've been sent references a couple of times really recently of these, uh, you know, sort of seventies library music albums and late sixties library music albums. And they seem to be having a little bit of a resurgence. You can't buy the CDs of them anywhere. They're all just on YouTube. I think people have uploaded the vinyls onto YouTube, and uh, and that seems to be the only place you can find them. And the the records themselves cost hundreds and hundreds of pounds. They're so rare. But yeah, it's um. It's it's all of those sort of top session players uh, from you know from the late sixties and early seventies who just sort of absolutely smashed it on these TV soundtracks and you know background music like Carol Kay on bass and you know all, just all these amazing musicians and uh, yeah the music's brilliant I love I'm loving digging into that at the minute. 
Yeah, and a lot of it's instrumental as well. So it's like there's room for for more exploration. You're not you know bound to working around a vocal. Um, but yeah, that strange exotica that was in films from you know the '60s and things. Those soundtrack sort of things that are just really interesting. Yeah, agreed. Finally, uh, if you were to give some advice to somebody who's sort of beginning their journey into you know, say they've got a, a decent digital interface and they're, they're looking to, to start the journey into to sort of integrating more of a either analog mindset or analog actual analog gear, sort of outboard gear into their setup. What would you advise uh, from your experience would be a, a nice place to start or, or sort of an approach, a beginning approach for it? I think... Um... Maybe sort of less is more. The temptation is to jump in and buy a bunch of gear and, you know, for recording something that you can record with multiple microphones like I started with drums and things, it's almost more beneficial to start with one mic or two mics and, and keep it simple um, and see what what limitations you can um, work within and getting different sounds, really focus on mic placement, um, things like that, capturing the source, rather than, you know, make sure it sounds good straight off the bat before you start piling on plugins and doing wild EQing and things. So um, I think when I started, I was like, there must be a hell of a lot more stuff that has to go on to this audio to make it good. And it's like, well, good is subjective. You know, if it sounds good to me or if it sounds good to the person that's listening to it, then maybe it is good. So, um, yeah, having the confidence to... To keep it simple, I think is is a good way to learn. To to build on that slightly, I think that uh, I, I I completely sympathise with that. You know, it, there must be a lot more that happens. But actually, what seems to to be happening for me is the the further into this process I get, the more uh, the 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 bigger the changes come from the smaller adjustments. Um, so you know, moving a mic a tiny little bit can change the EQ and save you having to put an EQ on or just sorting your gain staging out. And I think that that's where the misconception of more stuff needs to happen comes from. More stuff, you could say more more things do need to happen, but those things are actually tiny little placement things or gain staging things. Um, and I think that uh, if you... Could you, you, you mentioned uh, constraints and seeing what restrictions you can put on yourself. How could you just articulate how that encourages better quality or more creativity in your, in your opinion? Um, well, maybe it improves focus. If you're focusing on fewer things, you know, if you've got fewer bands of EQ, um, yeah, I think that for me, learning through having those constraints, working with a four-track set machine and I only had two condensers um, to begin with and um, I think it can really leave room for creativity um, and learning if you just don't have too many options. It's like yeah. a cafe. You go to a cafe, if they've got 40 different meals on the, on the menu, it's overwhelming and do they really do any of them really well? I want to go to a cafe that has two things on the menu because I know they're going to do them really well. Exactly. Uh, that's a, a very good way of putting it. <laughs> um, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
Thanks, Joe, for having me on. I'm, I'm loving the podcast and I can't wait to keep listening. Thanks, man. Um, where can people find you? You're on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at uh, Liam Goff Drums. That's L-I-A-M-G-O-U-G-H Drums. So and then, you can catch that and look up the Teskey Brothers at um, the Teskey Brothers on Instagram. That's T-E-S-K-E-Y. And we've got a website and a, a mailing list. And um, yeah, jump on and have a look. Are you planning, I know you guys are still in lockdown there, but have you got plans for touring next year perhaps? Yeah, so I think early next year we're, we're planning to do a run around Australia if we can with the 40-piece uh, orchestra behind amazing. us, which is terrifying but also amazing. <laughs> um, but we'll be getting back to, to Europe and the States as soon as we can. We've, we'd spent three and a half years touring Europe and the States flat out and um it's a big big market for us in the uk and holland and germany and all around the states and canada so as soon as we can do it safely uh we'll we'll be back touring again amazing look forward to it thanks so much thanks joe okay So I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. As I've said countless times, such a lovely guy and he's got such a cool approach to recording and it's just that, it just sums up, uh, I feel a bit of a kinship with him because it sums up my attitude towards this as well and it seems to be the way that the world's moving and what what this whole podcast is about. You know, it's, it's really interesting that I get to speak with producers and engineers that were around in the 60s, but that doesn't mean anything necessarily unless it's related to all of us listening, really, and all of us who are sort of making music now and how their past experiences can influence the way that we make music. And I think Liam seems to typify uh, everything that this podcast stands for and the approach to music that I dearly love and is clearly producing outstanding results, as you can hear in in, uh, the Teskey Brothers albums um, and his drumming style. It's all just so musical. I I love it. So I encourage you to go and check out those albums. Um, I'm I'm really into it personally. It's it's the kind of music that I really, really adore, sort of Motown soul-inspired Americana, Um, aside from, you know, all of the the sort of Beatles-y style stuff I love. Um, but go and check those albums out, if not least just to hear the way that they sound given now how you know that they were recorded um, and hopefully listen to them with a, a set of ears that is uh, freshly informed. Um, so you can do that. Uh, hopefully they'll be back touring next year. Um, you can check out their website, as Liam mentioned, and also Liam is on Instagram at Liam Goff Drums. Uh, you can also get in touch with me. My email address is joe at all you need is drums. I'm also on Instagram at all you need is drums, or you can hear my daughter shrieking outside the door. Um, so I better speed this outro up. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, send me a message. Um, and if you want to support the podcast, you can do that by buying a mug from my website, all you need is drums.com. Uh, and there is a link to the shop there. Thank you so much to everybody that has bought mug already. I really appreciate the support. Um, And I'll be back next week. So a huge thanks to Rory for editing and uploading the podcast, to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, and to David Henshaw for the artwork he supplies. Have a fantastic week, and I will be back next Tuesday. Goodbye!